Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Rachel Edelman, Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible at Hebrew College in Boston. And today I have invited our guest, Mara Benjamin, to speak about her most recent book, The Obligated Self, Maternal Subjectivity and Jewish Thought, published by Indiana University Press in 2018. Mara Benjamin is the Irene Kaplan Levant or Levant, Professor and Chair of Jewish Studies at Mount Holyoke College. She holds a PhD in Modern Jewish Thought and Religious Studies from Stanford University. Her 2018 book, The Obligated Self, Maternal Subjectivity in Jewish Thought, received the 2019 American Academy of Religion Award for Excellence in the Study of Religion, Constructive Reflective Category, and was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award in 2018. She is also the author of Rosenzweig's Bible, Reinventing Scripture for Jewish Modernity, published by Cambridge in 2009. Benjamin joined the faculty of Mount Holyoke College in 2017. Previously, she served on the faculty position at St. Olaf College, was the Jacob and Hilda Blauston postdoctoral fellow at Yale University, and held the Hazel D. Cole postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Washington. So I want to welcome Mara. It is so, so nice to have you here with us today. Welcome Thank to you so much. new Yeah. Yeah. I'm Welcome to new fan. books and Jewish yeah. studies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um tell us um more about yourself. Um well I um I started at Mount Holyoke um a couple of years ago as you mentioned um as the chair of the Jewish studies program and it was a very exciting uh moment for me to be able to do more with Jewish studies than I had previously. Um, and uh, at the same time, one thing I really valued about my previous position, which was at St. Olaf College, where theological studies are taken quite seriously, is that I think it freed me up in a way to um, to do theology or to kind of claim that as something that I think about or I do. Um, so I'm really appreciative of that part of my kind of journey because I think it helped me incubate this this project. I'm not sure if that's what you were asking when you said, tell me more about yourself or if you had something else in no. mind. Uh, no, yeah, that's great. Relevant, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so I just want to unpack the title a little bit. Uh, maybe you could help me with the title. So The Obligated self maternal subjectivity and Jewish thought. So tell me, what is maternal subjectivity? 
Yeah, thank you for asking that. That's um, that's something that I get asked a lot about from a couple of different vantage points. One of the vantage points um, is about gender. Why did I choose to write about maternal subjectivity, about um, something that's identified with women, with female parents, um, as opposed to, say, parental subjectivity? And then there's the other part of that, which is subjectivity, which is a pretty fraught, um, it's a fraught term in some ways. Um, so why don't I start with that? Um, in, in thinking about this book, I mean, my, my mind, my um, way of seeing things in the world is very much conditioned by, or I should say, my way of thinking about intellectual questions and experience is conditioned um, in part by my graduate training. And I um, began this project after having done a PhD in modern Jewish thought and written a book on Rosenzweig. And I was um, trying to figure out how to move forward with another project. And I had just um, given birth about, I don't know, six months, nine months before when I started really thinking about this. And it occurred to me that that there were very few treatments that I saw um, that were serious intellectual treatments of what it felt like to care for a young dependent creature who um, who I loved and love, um, and um, it it seemed so odd, you know, that there was this absence, and at the same time there were so many pieces of my intellectual training that, that I was thinking about in a kind of experiential way, such as, um, you know, dyadic intersubjective relationships, <laughs> which I, I, you know, that that's kind of core. Um, and so that juxtaposition made me think that there was something to say about this kind of phenomenological aspect of, um, of my experience or, or phenomenology, you know, encountering the world. And um, that was conditioned for me by being a female, um, a cisgender female, by being um, a mother in a world where motherhood means a bunch of different things, but definitely a specific set of associations. Um, and so I felt like for that reason, there was something to say about maternal subjectivity and Jewish thought. Um, in terms of gender, I would say that um, I write about sources from the distant past and the more recent past. And um, in those in the worlds in which those sources were produced, there really isn't a concept of parenthood, this kind of inclusive gender neutral term that could be filled by anyone of any gender, right? There are these separate categories, maternal, paternal, mothers, fathers, right? And those are the two kinds of things for the most part, um, at least in the sources that I deal with. And so um, I felt that it was important to think about maternal subjectivity in part because I owed that to my sources. My sources come from um, a world in which we can't imagine such a thing as just a parent without regard to gender. 
even though to the extent that I I'm thinking constructively in a future oriented way, I wanted to also address, and I make this explicit in the book, I wanted to address this book to anyone who has the opportunity and the burden and the everything of uh, raising small children. So I just want to interject. Um, I've been introduced to your book from several different angles, but one of the most interesting angles was from one of my students, Eric Feld, a rabbinical student at Hebrew College, and he was really excited about Levinas, Rosenzweig, and then your book as a sequel to that notion of obligated. And he himself is a very hands-on parent with two small children and being a rabbinical student. He's just a remarkable young man. So um, I want to point that in, that he could really identify with what you were saying. So that brings me to the other question. (laughs) It was was very exciting uh, to see that you also speak to a man. I didn't want the title to signal that this was not for, you know, anyone Mm. with that interest. But I do think that there are so many still societal expectations, personal expectations about parents based on gender that it really, it still means something, you know, and, and I'm glad that you have a, I am assuming male identified um, student who found so much meaning. And I, I hope that will be the case um, as well. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So that brings me to the other part of the title, the obligated self. Um, in what way do you see yourself as a, um, a continuation of the Rosenzweig slash Levinas philosophical perspective. And I think you actually have to initiate our listeners into what that is. In what way are you continuing that notion of um, uh, the commanded self? And in what way do you see yourself as diverging or perhaps even expanding from that um, base notion? Yeah, thanks for asking that, because that goes to a core issue for me in in working through the book and working through these thinkers that I had come to know so intimately as a graduate student and as a scholar. So um so let me just backtrack and and fill in a little bit for listeners, um, which is to say that the the people that still to this day inhabit most um, most people's um, associations with the term modern Jewish thought is a group of uh, German thinkers from the 18th century forward. Um, we're starting to change this association, but let, let me just bracket <laughs> that change for the, for the most part. Um, and in particular, in the 20th century, um, Martin Buber and Franz Rosenzweig, you know, interwar and beyond in the case of, um, of Buber, thinkers who develop a discourse of ethics and theology that is very much rooted in intersubjective intersubjective relationality. So the idea of a dyad in which there are two parts, um, an I and a thou, a soul and God, they name them different ways, 
um, who whose relationship and whose encounter, I should say, is constitutive of selfhood. And so they locate, they put a lot of work onto that intersubjective encounter. That's kind of where all the action is, in a way. And there are social, political, historical reasons that I detail in the book for why I think they turn to intersubjective relationships as they do, why they do so much work. Um, and that's one part of the story that I don't need to go into here. But um, that um, that heavy lift that happens when um, they are trying to do theology on the intersubjective relationship is something that is then carried forward for a thinker like Emmanuel Levinas, who um, is taking Franz Rosenzweig here in a kind of Cold War French context now, um, and secularizing it um, and and transforming that model in a number of ways. But still, there's that intersubjective relationship, which is where um, you know I see the face of the other, and I um, am struck in certain ways, I am called up short, I am, uh, you know, profoundly beholden to the other. That's the language that you might find in there. And actually, um, a, a colleague, Naomi Seidman, when we first all started having to wear masks um, in public, uh, wrote something very thoughtful about um, how this regard for the face of the other, you know, sort of what happens when we can cannot actually see the other's face um, in this way. Of course, Levinas doesn't mean it only in terms of the face, but nonetheless. Um, so, so for me, that um, I'm interested in why these 20th century figures look to relationships as they do, why they endow them with so much significance. Um, so there's a piece of me that's sort of intrigued and curious about that, that I write about in the book. But I also, um, as your question alluded to, I, I think it's really profoundly, um, important. And, uh, I think they were onto something basically. I think that they had some really important ideas there about what happens in the encounter between two, let's say individuals for now, um, that tells us something about God, about our own uh, location in the social world and all sorts of things. So I build on them, you know, to go to your question, I, I see myself as extending um, and standing, you know, sort of being very much indebted intellectually to that line of thinking. At the same time, as you also alluded to, I am critical of them. And I also want to sort of expand then their their model in a way that I think ultimately shifts it. Um, I guess transform would be a little bit optimistic, but or generous to myself. But I, I I do try to kind of make it work better for real life, essentially. Um, so I um, I'm very much indebted to these thinkers. At the same time, there are um, a number of limits that I saw in how they envisioned intersubjectivity, who was part of an intersubjective dyad. And these things, it turns out, really matter. I, you know, Buber, Rosenzweig do not explicitly name, oh, we are thinking of adult, you know, male subjects 
who meet in some sort of um, idealized plane of social, um, you know, equality or something like that. Um, it's not explicit, but it becomes clear when you look for, okay, how could I imagine what's happening between my infant and me in the model of the I and thou, right? And it's, it doesn't really work that well in certain ways, in many ways. I would say like, you know, most of what happens in that encounter doesn't find a place in the model that Buber offers. And then when you go to a figure like Levinas, who, you know, does explicitly um, use certain kinds of metaphors of uh, fecundity is one of his, you know, the themes that comes up in totality and infinity or bearing the other. It turns out once again, when you look there for something that, that feels at all like lived experience, um, it's not really there. And of course they're not really trying to address lived experience. They're, they're writing about kind of existential deep reality. Um, but, but when you try to think about that existential deep reality, um, it turns out that you need something other than let's say pregnancy metaphors or, um, an idealized feminine, which is something that, that we find as well. So well, totally acknowledging how indebted I am to uh, this tradition of thinking about, about God, about relationships. I also was motivated to write this book or at least to place it in this kind of intervention, uh, interventionary stance with modern Jewish thought when I realized that there was a kind of failure to line up or a failure to, <laughs> to be able to comprehend this reality that was very much part of my own life and a part of so many people's lives, having a young child um, within that paradigm. So the, the attempt to expand it had to do with thinking about issues, for instance, of power differentials Um so when you're talking about the difference between a parent and a, and a young child, there are all kinds of interesting differentials of power. Um, there's physical power, typically. There's, um, but there's also psychological power. And, and it's not unidirectional, or it's not sort of like there's, there's this hierarchy and it only goes one direction. And one of the really fascinating um, and compelling things about being in close relationship with a young child is how they exert power, <laughs> all kinds of power, um, it, emotionally, psychologically as well. So I, those were some of, that's just one example of something that's not really captured. Um, it, it seemed to me in, let's say a, a Buberian model. Um, Levinas actually is, is more helpful in that way, but has other limits. So, what I'm trying to say is that throughout the project, I wanted to help us think differently about the way our own experiences constituted by using these thinkers, but also then using, um, using our experience to show where they need um, reimagining or expansion.
Really interesting. So, I, so I, I w- I'm very intrigued by how the maternal law model can teach us something about Jewish thought, and not only Jewish thought about, but theology. Um, I can understand how a, a dyadic adult relationship um, might have something to say about our relationship with God, but it's very unusual. And I think this is the the crux of your unique vision, that there's something about the maternal relationship with the infant that can tell us something about our relationship with God. And what I noticed in the book is that you flip the identity of the deity, the God figure, sometimes the God figure is the mother who is the provider for the infant. And sometimes it, God is the infant who is saying, love me. So I just want you to unpack that, you know, that very interesting pivot that you make in the book. Sure. You know, it's funny, in spite of what I said earlier in our conversation about, you know, finding a place of comfort in, or I guess a a place that I could inhabit in the world of theology, um, I actually get very nervous about it also. And I I sort of um, am not sure how to, um, how to really account (laughs) for, for some of the the theological moves that I come up with, it's sort of like they, they, um, they don't always feel like they would pass the, you know, the systematic theology test, certainly not systematic theology, but, but then I take comfort from the fact that in our, you know, certainly in the rabbinic tradition, we have so many different kinds of contradictory images and contradictory, um, ways of thinking about the divine that I felt like it was actually okay. You know, it might not, it might not pass with, uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, certain models of what theology is, but I actually felt like, um, our tradition gave me permission to do that. So just to, to speak more directly to your question and your point, um, as I, as I mentioned, part of where this book came out of was, was feeling like there really wasn't an attempt to, to, I I couldn't find a book like this, so I had to write it. Right. But, um, there, there was no book that really captured what I felt like were critical elements of maternal experience. At the same time, there are so many ways in which the narratives that we have in Torah in particular, um, show us a figure who actually reminds me a lot of, of what I think of as constitutive parts of maternal experience, whether that's frustration, love, protection, um, concern, uh, and especially sort of being bound, you know, being bound to someone that is core to the book. That's why it's called the obligated self being, being bound, being tethered, um, which I think is is one of the ways in which God is portrayed in many Torah narratives. Is sort of God might like to be free of Bnei Israel, um, the people of Israel, and uh, 
and at the same time can't be. You know, there's something wrapped up <laughs> for God about being the God of this people. So there was this interesting, you know, absence on some level of talking about the maternal. At the same time, we have a classical text that's full of images of the maternal. So that's that's one side of that metaphor. And I am, you know, of course, far from um, the first to recognize this. We find it in many midrashim. We find it in in other, you know, literary critics and um, and readers of of Torah. So I'm I'm very much building on something that I that I think is implicit, if not explicit, in um, in a variety of classical sources for imagining God in these terms. Um, so then you asked about the other side, the sort of flip side of or the the invert. Yeah, sure. So can can I can I before we go through to the baby, let's just unpack some. Maybe do you have a text that uh, that's at your hand where God is the mother to Israel who who wants to uh, wants to divorce himself or or rid himself of this responsibility, but can't sure or rid herself well, of this responsibility. Do you, you have know, a text in mind? I guess mind the first thing that, that you... pops into my head is the scene after the golden calf where, you know, God is like, you know what, Moshe, let's let's just take the show on the road, you and me, right? Like forget them. Um and mm-hmm. God would mm-hmm. would is so infuriated by that um by that event that God would, if left to God's own devices, it seems, um, be done with them. And Moses kind of cajoles, pleads, implores God. um, And of course, the pronouns are very interesting here. You know, your people are, is this God's people? Is this Moses's people? Right. It kind of flips back and forth in there. Um, But that's, you know, I guess that's the, the first thing that that comes to mind um, as an example of that. I don't know if you as a scholar of, of, you know, mm-hmm. Bible and Midrash mm-hmm. might, might uh, read it otherwise, but that's, that's one of several episodes that, that I think of. Well, this is the thing about the other parent, the other parent says you might mm-hmm. be furious, but they're still your kids. Um, and so, um, Moses acts as a partner to remind God that there's still obligation. Uh, mm-hmm. There's an obligated self. Yeah, there. and then when Moshe, um, you know, back in Numbers, yeah. uh, um, and then gosh, if, I don't have it in my head. Eleven, eleven, yes, exactly. Numbers, uh, um, eleven. Where Moshe does not want Moses yeah. does not want to be um, burdened with this people, right? Um, and so there's, there's that episode as well, you know, uh, parents get frustrated. I don't really focus primarily on, on Moses in this role, although many other people have, have written about this. Um, well, you did talk about it when you talked about the mm-hmm. omen, the, the role of the nursemaid and how I, you know, Moses deliberately uses that word omen. He says, what am I? their nursemaid, their omen, that I should bear them in my, my, my breast and carry the burden of this people. And he says, okay, we'll distribute the responsibility yeah. Yeah, to the 70 elders. Um, yeah. 
but there, yeah, but it takes two. And, and I think that that's another, so, so it's Moses and God as in a way, birthing the people together, bearing the burden of the people together, and then checking that they, um, they both continue to feel responsible. In a way, um, uh, yeah, there is that dynamic there. And I, I was kidding when I said it takes a village, you know, with the 70 elders, but actually that's a pretty important piece of my, of my perspective that I try to convey in the book, which is that part of the problem with the intersubjective model that we find, particularly, I think of Buber, Rosenzweig has a kind of weird, interesting picture of where that dyad fits, but um, is that it is only the dyad. And that's not, that's not real. You know, that's not how it really is. Nobody, um, first of all, there are plenty of people, and I, I was raised by one of them who are single parents, right? And who, uh, but whether they're single parents or families with two parents or whatever, everybody relies on their village, you know, and some people have a more intact and more, um, and a village that shows up more than others, you know, and uh, that's, I, I certainly, as somebody who is raising kids and who has raised them in, in communities where I feel very supported by people, you know, I think it's, it's actually a piece of the work to expand the, um, the lens so that it comprehends not only quote unquote, the parents, you know, um, in some idealized fashion, but actually a whole web of relationships that makes, um, child rearing possible. And, and I deal with that in the sixth and seventh chapter, um, one about childcare workers who we have, you know, intimate is part of the intimate life of, of families, whether that's a, a teacher, daycare provider, nanny, whatever. And also the people that we encounter, whether it's, you know, the people who deliver the baby and, uh, you know, or, or the people who bring the mail and the kid recognizes, and then you have your interactions, you know, whatever, like our world is populated by a lot of people. So this is moving us a little bit out of the, the biblical episode, obviously that, that you started with, but, um, but that's an example of where I wanted to use Torah narratives and, um, you know, other resources, but I felt like I wanted to also check that against something that I think of as reality, <laughs> you know, and, and then I had to, of course, check, a, check my own reality against other people's and things like that. But, you know, that, that's just to shed light on how I tried to think about some of these things. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, so before I, I want to pick up oh, yeah. on the role of the neighbor, you had a <laughs> fantastic story about the subway incident. I want to bring in that. Um, but before we do, I don't want to oh, yeah, move away from God theology too quickly. Um, Cause that, that's Yeah. So God is the baby. Um, So I'm just going to read a paragraph and then I'm going to invite you to comment on this. And it's your chapter on love. So at the bottom of page 23, you say, uh, by contrast, the love and responsible 
The responsibility I came to know seemed remarkably reminiscent of religious forms of practice with which I was familiar. In Jewish theology and practice, love is active and behavioral. God loves a particular people, Israel, with special intensity, and the covenant God makes with Israel mediates this love and obligates both parties. Love, furthermore, can be commanded, and this commanded love is performative. A daily praxis of service constitutes the proper response to divine love. Juxtaposing embodied maternal experiences of love and biblical expressions of divine love, as I do in this chapter, illuminates both the human and divine. God's firstborn, Israel, occasions intense disappointment, rage, pride, vulnerability, and anguish, just as children provoke in their human mothers. But the maternal position also parallels that of the people of Israel in the covenantal relationship, for the visceral imperative to care for one's children is accompanied by a visceral imperative to love them. Thou shalt love Yudke Vavke, Yahweh, your God, or as Rosenzweig glossed it, God's command, love me, is also the cry of the infant. Wow. So the cry of the infant. Um, Just unpack that for me. I just thought that was such a provocative idea because thinking about God's command, love me, um, as an infant is quite striking and, and radically divergent from Levinas and Rosenstein, yeah. as I understand. Yeah, I mean, that was one of those moments writing or, or formulating that thought and putting it down where I thought, oh my God, I'm going to get struck by lightning. Like, am I Am I allowed to say this? Am I allowed to? Exactly, right? Bring it on. Bring it on. uh, Can I really put in print that we're imagining God as an infant crying? Um, But whatever, I did it. And um, I think, (laughs) you know, so, okay. So for, for those who are not, intimately involved with Rosenzweig as I have been in my life. Um, you know, there's a, there's a passage in the star of redemption where he imagines God, um, as lover and the soul as beloved and God saying the words love me, which in scripture show up as, um, you know, the, the ahafta, right? Love the Lord, your God. Um, and so there is this moment of in the, in the yeah. In the yeah. Shema. So, in the Shema so that, that, um, those words love me are, um, sort of resonant for me of that passage and of this idea that God is needy, right? God wants to be loved. And that's a, you know, a very anti-Maimonidean notion. There's, there's all kinds of, um, ways in which that counters what many people think of as the nature of God, right? God is not needy. But of course, there are others, you know, Heschel and and many more who imagine God in search of humans, right? And and in need of, of humans. So so that's the side of things that I that I fall on. And then from there to imagining God as um as the infant, you know, I think what I'm what I'm 
working on in that chapter is the fact that we are commanded to love God. And that for many people is a sort of, um, you know, a challenging thought, right? How can love be commanded? That's exactly what Rosenzweig himself asks in that chapter rhetorically, and then you know, proceeds to answer it. Um, and so, you know, that resonated for me in thinking about the way we often experience our obligations to people we love as commanded. And sometimes we love doing those things, caring for them. And sometimes we do not enjoy caring for them. Um, But most of the time, most of us um, do it anyway. And I think that's what, (laughs) you know, God would like us to love God. Um, God commands us to serve God. And on a good day, those things might converge, right? And I think in the same way, there is um, an element of non-optional service that many of us experience in relation to um, dependent creatures that we have chosen to claim as our children um, or that have claimed us as their parents. Um, and, you know, I don't feel like getting up in the middle of the night to comfort this child, um, but I'm going to do it, you know, or whatever. So that that structure was the thing that enabled me to imagine God as calling to us, um, you know, again, in keeping with with Rosenzweig and, and many others, is calling to humans and saying, love me and serve in, in a, serve me (laughs) basically. Um, but also that love and obligation are not oppositional and, and these are not, you know, there's a, there's a long history of sort of Pauline inflected rhetoric that wants to set these two things in opposition to one another, right? The demand and the, the love. And I think that those are not oppositional categories for our, you know, in our tradition, in Jewish tradition, I should say, not our, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of eliding or sliding here between uh, kind of Jewish thought and, and the scholarly project, but, but nonetheless, I would say both are, both hats would have me saying the same thing. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, in that sense, you're similar to James Diamond's new book on Jewish theology unbound, in which he, he takes issue with the dichotomy between law mm-hmm. and f- faith or belief um, that is eons old. And the, the idea that love is, is, um, something that is not bound up with duty. I think that's where the metaphor of the maternal is actually very powerful um, Mm -hmm. as it maps onto theology. Because you have both obligation, you have duty, and you also have this visceral, deeply emotionally connected. So I want to bring it to a text that I thought was fascinating. Your reading was really fascinating. It was a text Mm -hmm. about a nursing mother Mm. who's divorced from her husband 
And um, I think it's in yeah. part two where you discuss. Yeah, do you remember uh, that passage? Yeah, I got it. Um, it's. Yeah. Um, so okay. I want you to summarize that text. Um, there's a tension. There's a deep tension between maternal. The maternal. Uh, let's say the maternal feeling of nursing and her obligation to nurse her children to her child compelled by the husband okay. from whom she's divorced. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah. So maybe you can introduce the text a little bit more clearly, but that was interesting for me in terms of the, f- where um, legal and narrative um, t- uh, uh, background Uh, chafe against each other uh, in interesting ways. Um, And I think um, maybe we'll tie into this question about obligation Um, and love. I I have to say, I think this is a kind of complicated um, passage. So let let me see if I can backtrack and construct it um, simply. So, So this text um, comes from the Babylonian Talmud, Bavli Ketubot um, 59a, I think. And um, yeah, this is following um, Mishnah Ketubot um, 5.5, which which states what the um, thing, what the labors are that a woman who's married must do for her husband. And it kind of goes through a whole set of what we might think of as domestic labors. Um, and which ones of those can be outsourced to servants if she has servants and which ones, you know, in what order. So um, the one of the interesting things to me about this is that nursing her child, that is, and that's the language there, nursing her child, is constructed here as a duty to her husband um, and or a labor to her husband. And, and this was you know one among whatever countless examples we could um, point to of the androcentric and and really patriarchal assumptions going into this in part because there is no tie that is imagined at least legally um, between the the nursing woman and the child that she's nursing. Um, of course, they're imagining a world in which you could outsource that labor to let's say a a, a wet nurse, but in a way, the the principle of it is that you know, caring for her own child, you know, feeding her own child is something that she owes her husband, not the child. So that's point one that is like striking. <laughs> um, the second thing is then we say, well, okay, what if the woman's divorced? What then? Is she no longer obligated to her husband to nurse because that was, after all, a marital duty? Um, so that's an interesting question. And then the discussion in the, in the Talmud starts from there. And so um, the passage that, um, or the legal text is um, the following. Uh, this, is, this is the school of Hillel, which says the husband compels her and she nurses the child. Okay, so he can still compel even after she is divorced. Uh, oh, sorry. It, okay. No, but then we're going to actually clarify that he can't compel her, sorry, to to breastfeed 
Um, but if the child recognizes her, if the child is old enough to, to prefer her, recognize her, then she, she will be compelled to breastfeed, but she gets paid for it. So, I mean, I can't even tell you how many things I was excited by when I came across this, this passage. Um, partly, you know, you, your question started with love and obligation, right? As, um, you know, we, we may assume feelings of love, but they're not actually named here. We're what we, what is named is, um, a legal obligation where there is some kind of attachment on the part of the child. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. Um, or I, I don't know what number we're up to. That's, that's one of those things. Um, then you also asked about narrative. So the narrative part con- continues here. Once a divorcee who did not want to nurse her son, okay, so here we're illustrating that example, came to Shmuel, who said to Rav Dimi, son of Yosef, go and check her. He went, um, presumably Yosef, and placed her among a row of women and taking hold of her child, carried him in front of them. Uh, so you kind of imagine like a police lineup, I guess, of, of <laughs> looking yeah, them all exactly over, which I mean, I hate to say that, that image, there's, there's a yeah. certain, uh, truth to her being compelled to do this labor. Anyway, when he came up to her, meaning the the rightful, the the woman who had been nursing, um, the child looked at her face with joy, but she turned her eyes away from him. Right. And the rabbi says, lift up your eyes. He called to her, come and take your son. And then the coda on this is how does a blind child know its mother? Right. Because we were just talking about in the case of a, of a child being able to visually recognize the mother, um, what happens if that is not possible? Then Rav Ashi said by the smell and the taste, presumably of her milk. So, um, you know, to, to keep unpacking this, um, one of the, you know, there's the law, there's, sorry, there's law and narrative, which uh, is not really my main field of scholarship, but many people have written on it. And I think it's, it's really a fascinating moment to examine on that level. Um, yes, exactly. One of my exactly. colleagues, Jane um, Kanarak. Yeah. But, but also the, the fungibility or non fungibility of the woman's labor is pretty interesting to me. Um, the recognition of this particular person, this particular nursing woman by the child means that she is not just a milk source, right? And she is not just performing a labor that is exchangeable on the marketplace of commodities, right? Like other service things, but there is a relationship that has been established, a kind of familiarity, a desire, you know, whatever, whatever else has been established in the course of that essentially transactional relationship as the Mishnah would imagine it, um, that then has to be somehow brought into the equation. So, you know, I appreciate certain things about this text. Like I appreciate the idea that certain kinds of domestic labor could be, maybe even should be, um, brought into uh, visibility through uh, payment, right? But that's one way in which we recognize 
things as um, as valuable as to pay for them. It's not the only way, but it's certainly one way. And that's one thing we're talking about here is whether she is going to be compelled to nurse, but get a wage for it. But I'm also really interested in this moment in which transaction, you know, kind of pure transactional uh, moment actually becomes something else. And um, I I raise this, I I read this text in the context of um, thinking about daycare workers and nannies and other people who um, who we pay to care, to care for children, um, who are, you know, not the parents because the parents don't get paid in this country to care for their children. It's usually actually a, a pretty big financial cost. Um, but then we, you know, and this is an ongoing issue for, for feminism, for ethics of care, for all kinds of reasons, you know, then people are hired, usually people who are uh, who are not paid well enough and who are of marginal, um, you know, status in some form. Um, and so, you know, for me, this was a great text to think with, to think about the maternal place, the place of other people. When do we become irreplaceable? How do we deal with that irreplaceability, whether it's as a biological parent or as a caregiver? Um, of someone else. So, you know, I don't know that I have a kind of neat package to wrap this up. And I think it's so rich because there are these, all these different strands, but that's the, that's the context in which I read it. I, you know, I see this as intimate labor, whether it's in a biological relationship or some other kind of relationship that creates ties, right? That whether you get paid for it, whether you don't get paid for it, whether you should get paid for it, you know, there is a tie there that makes a person non-fungible to others. And how would our economics of caregiving, our, you know, social world be different if we thought about that seriously? You know, we don't think, we don't have a society in which there is, um, you know, that, that regards care work as valuable. And so I actually see this text for all of its, you know, problems from various perspectives. I actually think it's really great to think with. <laughs> it's really helpful. And, and I, I wanted to bring that into dialogue with people like Joan Toronto, who, um, who write about um, ethics of care, especially what, what some other scholars have called the kind of, um, what is it, the global heart transplant. No, I'm, I'm botching what they call it, but, but basically this, this idea that, you know, there are many people who, um, leave their own children to work as caregivers in faraway places for other people. And, you know, uh, wow, what, what would be a just way of honoring care work? Yeah. Yeah. Very powerful. Um, so that just in the text, at the moment in the text, I have it in front of me on page one, one Oh two. I'm just thinking, um, I, I'm a slow reader. Um, but you know, when the rabbi says to the mother who doesn't want to nurse her child, he says, lift up your eyes, raise your eyes and take him, take your, take your child. Uh, it's a very poignant moment. And at the same time, 
she's going to be compensated for that nursing. Um, and it, for me, it brings in this question of, go, goes back to that question of um, where law and love meet. Um, that idea that the rabbi actually has the power to compel a woman or to care to anyway. Yeah. Uh, if we can call yeah. nursing yeah. Care to care anyway. Yeah. 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 That is um, a really salient passage because, you know, on the yeah. one hand, there is that kind of surveilling, compelling force that is um, wielded exclusively by the rabbis in this, in this scenario. So it's not, you know, mm-hmm. a kind of equally distributed power to make these decisions at, at the same time, what I think is so, um, powerful in a context in which maternal care is so often romanticized and sentimentalized. What I think is powerful about this is that it, it gives Mm -hmm. voice to a woman who doesn't want to nurse a child. In fact, her own child. I mean, that's a, that's an often, even today, you know, you can be pilloried in, you know, in public conversation if you say, you know, I did not want to care for that child that I have, you know, that, that's a, it's not about whether you're going to do it, but like you're expected to want to do it all the time. And so, (laughs) yeah, I guess in in those days, it was really a life and death in the text, right? The the reason that they can tell is because of the, they're worried that the child will refuse to nurse from someone else. And then they don't have formula, you know, then, then that's it. Right. So there is a danger to the health of the infant. If, if the woman isn't compelled at at the same time, you know, I mean, maybe I'm being Pollyanna here, but I, I think there's, you know, there's something refreshing, I guess, about, (laughs) about being able to recognize a woman who does not want to be compelled to do this work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. Okay. So I want to move towards the, the really interesting your work, work you do on the, mm. um, the stranger and the neighbor. Uh, and, um, so we're, we're adjured throughout the Tanakh 36 times, uh, to not oppress the stranger for you or you were strangers in a land, not your own, in presumably the Egypt. Um, so that's the stranger. You So not to oppress the stranger. And then the, the other text that you were very engaged with was, is, um, uh, and you shall love your neighbor. You shall love the neighbor that is like yourself. And you tell one fascinating story. I don't know if you would want to tell this again on on online, but you tell one fasc- fascinating story of where these two texts um, came to a head for you in the subway in New York City. <laughs> and um, and I thought that was a fantastic read of what the difference is between uh, the respect for the stranger. And the love of the neighbor and when a neighbor can be a stranger. So I, I invite you to tell that story to our listeners. And again, how are you reading, richly reading the biblical text through yeah. the maternal lens? Um, 
yeah, I, I think everybody, everybody who's told me about this story, like he's a parent, loves the story. Um, that's the last part of this chapter because it is such a, I mean, you can kind of feel it in your kishkis um, if you've ever been responsible for a child having a tantrum in public, you know, just how agonizing it can be. Um, even if you have all kinds of social privilege, it's still pretty horrible. Um, so yeah, the story is, is essentially, um, without telling it, let, let me go back to the question of, you know, reading the love your neighbors yourself through a maternal lens. Um, yeah, that's what I set out to do in this chapter. And I think that it's really complicated because um, the idea of a neighbor who is a kind of generic neighbor, right, is a is an ideal category. There is no generic person, generic um, neighbor. It's always a particular someone. And when you raise, you know, when you're intimately involved with other people, as I mean, I'm thinking here about young children, but of course, really for for anyone. It, the person that we live with or love or whatever is never just a generic person, right? It's always someone particular and someone whom, whom we will experience as unique and as set apart. Um, so when I was thinking about this question, okay, you know, it's kind of like what I was saying about the I and thou, like, how can I, where does this fit in the world of caring for a young child, you know? So there's one piece, which is that, um, is not, I think, named or alluded to in any way in, in that Torah passage or its commentaries, which is that, um, you know, I, so uh, let's just say the, the, the Torah text is not talking about mothers and children, as far as I uh, you know, that's, I think, a reasonable guess. It's it's viewing, you know, adult males as the primary, you know, people and a neighbor as as someone like that, right? Kamocha, like yourself, where yourself is the person who's being addressed throughout the second person imperatives of the Torah. So, so the first thing to do is to say, okay, well, that's that's all well and good for the for the Torah, but now what does it mean in the context of this um, this experience of child rearing? Right? So one thing it could mean is that I want to um, somehow imagine my child as a neighbor to others eventually or now. Um, and what am I doing as I live with this child intimately and in these moments of dyadic encounter that trains them to be a neighbor to others, um, to be someone who can live in civil society with others and respect others and, and so on. So that's one side of it is to um, have this thought experiment, I guess, where I imagine my child no longer really primarily tethered to me um, but who is a neighbor in the world and, and sort of how does that inform, um, as it of course does all of these intimate interactions. Um, 
And then there's the, I guess the other side of it, which is I, I read that passage from Leviticus as asking us to imagine the neighbor as the beloved child of someone else. Um, and what does that, you know, ask me to do? How does how do I then interact with my own child as if every neighbor I encounter, every, every human I encounter, every sort of member of my shared world, right. Is, is also somebody who either was the recipient or should have been the recipient of a certain kind of regard and, and beloved, you know, sort of a, a certain status of being intimately cared for and cared for as a particular human being. Um, so I see those as two kind of possibilities that I would want to use to, to extend or to, to apply. I, I don't want to say extend, but I, I guess to, to kind of enable that, those three words, <laughs> to help me think about like, what is it that I'm doing in this intimate work of caring for a child, uh, some of which takes place without any other quote unquote neighbors in sight. And a lot of which takes place as we cross the street, as we go to the grocery store, as we, you know, do all kinds of other things in, in daily life. Um, yeah. So that's, that's what I was hoping to do there. And I, I guess the passage at the end with the, with, um, the story of my tantruming child who, um, just briefly, you know, this was a a moment of this tantrum in subway car where, um, a couple of different individuals who were also in that subway car interacted with us in, um, in a number of (laughs) really striking ways. Um, sometimes, you know, taking it upon themselves to try to civilize us, um, and kind of informing us that, that this, um, episode was outside the bounds of civilized behavior, but, um, in either, Clearly. <laughs> that's kind of quick, su- quick summary, my diplomatic summary, um, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I'm still left with my kid and, uh, and then at the end of that day, my kid is left without me, you know, to go out and be in the world. So, so I think it's that oscillation between, uh, you know, and that's even too simplistic a way of imagining it, but, but that kind of, um, dialectic between being out in the world and being with this child that is part of a, a really different side of us that is not usually shown to the public that, that those mutually inform one another all the time. And, um, you know, the domestic sphere is not a safe haven as it has sometimes been imagined, uh, in, in a romantic literature, a safe haven from the world. Right. I mean, that's not the case, um, in, in many ways, even if, it might be sometimes, right? Um, it's always informed by our consciousness of um, of others 
in some sense, right? If I reprimand my child for not being polite at the table or something like that, right? I'm thinking of it in part as, you know, you're going to be a human being out in the world at some point, And I want you to know matters, you know, whatever, whatever the trivial example is. Right. Um, so, so I think there's a, there's a tendency that I found in some of the literature I was reading to imagine the, the relationship with a parent as this kind of beginning of this, uh, set of social relationships that eventually, you know, supersedes and eclipses that of the, the mother, right. That, that you kind of, the child, it's always imagined as sort of being nurtured in this very, you know, loving little sphere by the mother and then kind of gradually going to kindergarten, gradually going to school and college, whatever it is, whatever, however the narrative goes, right. It's always about leaving <laughs> the parent in, in, in many versions of this. I shouldn't say always this, this is uh, you know, a, um, a racialized and a class kind of narrative, but nonetheless um, I wanted to say, you know, that's always imagining it from the point of view of a certain kind of child in a certain kind of location. And and it's not imagining, okay, what's the work then that happens as it does in this episode I recount of, okay, then we leave the subway car, we're walking down the street, how do we, how do we talk about what just happened? How do I experience what just happened? Um, how do I then bring that to my next, you know, experience of other people and my next, you know, moment of trying to train my child and uh, my regard for those other people. So that's what I wanted to do in that chapter is, is um, enable that relationship that is often figured as dyadic to, to be shown as being shot through with these um, many ways in which the, the social world that we inhabit and the daily kind of prosaic world that we inhabit shapes that and, and vice versa. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, there's obviously much more to be said about that role of the neighbor in child rearing. And um, I want to invite you to comment. I think you had int- intimated to me that you were thinking about the implications of this book on how we read the incidents that are happening all around us today. So I want to invite you into that, to, to reflect aloud uh, what you're thinking. Um, you know, I, I did ask you about that before we started recording. And I, I think I'm realizing that I'm, uh, it's so raw. And so there's so much anguish right now as we're speaking about um, about what has been a systemic form of abuse of, um, of people who were once children, people who are children, um, who are African-American and uh, all kinds of other uh, groups in this country. Um, and I think yeah, I, I I don't think I can talk much about it without getting uh you know a little bit overcome. But but I'll just say that you know when I heard that one of George Floyd's last um, statements uh, before he died, or one of the last things he 
did was call for his mother um, before being murdered. Uh, I just, that just um, chills me. And um, it's, it's such a, first of all, it's such a terribly intimate and thing to, to express and to have that be um, so violated, you know, a person's, person's death as, as this, uh, as this was, but um, yeah, I think it just, um, it really has been hard for me to, um, to process this anguish that is being, you know, rightly unleashed, um, without that lens of, of my work in this book and, and thinking about all of the people who are in so much pain, um, who have, who have put, um, all the love they have into other people who are then, you know, abused and murdered. So that's, I think all I can <laughs> say, yeah. say at this moment. Yeah. So, um, so for me, the segue is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that it feels that there were people at that scene who were doing just that when they were saying, can't you see He's unconscious. Can't you let him go? And the police, stony-faced, was clearly sadistic and had turned the person right into an it. And there were people that were calling out the I, thou, the I, thou, that were being the the re'echa kamocha. They were being the that they were loving their neighbor as themselves and this policeman could not um, because of their training, because of their racism, whatever. Um, and the, and very deep sadism uh, clearly. So I want to, I want to, what I really want to uphold um, from your book is the very strong ethical uh, underpinning to the book Um the emotion, the very open emotion, and the way that you read Jewish texts so broadly and so creatively. Um, I really, really appreciate um, your writing and and your daring. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I want you, our, my, my final question. Yeah. Sorry, my, my final question is can you tell us what you're working on now? Um, yeah, well, I I am a, a very much a serial monogamist um, in my intellectual life, so I'm uh, <laughs> I feel like I I'm you know very very slowly and carefully getting into the new relationship, uh, you know, and exploring what that might be. I I think um, oh, before the world seemed to turn upside down again and the pandemic and, uh, and, 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 um, I've been thinking about something that I think I will hopefully come back to, um, soon about, um, about climate change and what I suppose the question that I have is what, if anything, um, (laughs) from 
from the work that I did on, um, on parenting, mother, you know, all of that material, what of that might be um, a- applicable to this contemporary crisis that is, you know, not going away, even though we have many others laid on top of it. Um, there's a planetary crisis that we all know about. It seems like it is completely off the radar screen of Jewish studies um, in ways that I find very troubling. You know, there's there's a few people that I, I admire very much who, who are working on changing that. But, um, but, you know, I think there's a really strong, um, I don't know, resistance to allowing that crisis to occupy us as, um, as scholars of Jewish studies. And, um, so my, my thought is whether there's some way that I could, um, think about relationships, um, including relationships about uh, that we have as earthlings to the non-human and the more than human, um, you know, how can, how can, the work that I've done so far inform thinking about that or what new questions do I have to um, grapple with to imagine being an earthling in relationship to, but also embedded within this, um, this, you know, this world that we've destroyed or are destroying. Um, How might that be? be useful there. So I don't know the answer to that. Um, and maybe it won't be, but, (laughs) but I feel like I have to give it a go. Um, and I, I do definitely think that there is a lot to be unpacked about, um, kind of recent moves towards imminent, uh, thinking in theology that, that we find all over the place that are often seen as, um, a necessary part of repairing a relationship to, to the environment. Um, I'm not sure how I, you know, I, I have reservations about that. Um, there's also, um, you know, interesting work to be done on the transcendence side of that. So those are some of the questions that are, that are in my mind. Um, but I really haven't, um, I'm not ready to kind (laughs) of go, go further than that at this point. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being our guest on New Books in Jewish Studies. It's been a delightful conversation, and I hope that you and I will continue to have conversations uh, from this moment onward. Yeah, okay. Thank you you so so much, much. Rachel. I really appreciate being on the show, and um, yeah, thank you.